Welcome to Leadership Conversations with Josh Reich and Casey Sees. We have the conversations leaders want to have so they can win at leadership. Now, on to our show. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Leadership Conversations. This is Casey Cease, and I'm joined today on our show with a good friend of mine, a mentor, uh, a guru, if you will, and I don't know if you like being called guru, but my my good friend, Rod Brace. Rod is um, a mentor, a leader, a coach, a trainer, an executive. He's been in leadership in churches and in for-profit organizations. He's been in uh, leadership for the last several years in nonprofit healthcare. Uh, and so, uh, Rod, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Crazy. Thanks. Yeah. So Rod and I go way back. We go back almost 20 years and, uh, you know, everybody, uh, has key people that have impacted their lives at certain points, but really in my adult ministry and business life, I, I've had a few people and Rod's been one of those people and Rod, um, you know, I, I was, I was reflecting back with Stephanie the other day about, uh, your key involvement, um, when we started, uh, I don't know if you remember, we originally called it Casey Cease Outreach because I wanted to be Billy Graham. I didn't quite have the same anointing uh, and giftings uh, and then transitioned that to Transform Ministries. Um, your brainchild uh, is now what we have as Lucid Books. You helped me get that going and uh, just been a great mentor along the way. And so I wanted to bring you on today, uh, the show, and just let let our listeners get to know you a little bit. Why don't you give us a little bit of background? I gave kind of a cursory overview, uh, but maybe some key pivotal points in life and leadership that have brought you where you are today. Yeah, so sure. As you mentioned, I've been in healthcare for about uh, 35 years. I've served in various capacities as hospital CEOs, network CEO, regional president, a large health system in Houston. Um, I have some experience with uh, small business entrepreneurs as I've uh, helped my sons uh, set up some businesses there. Um, educational background is all in business, MBA, have a PhD in management. Uh, so a lot of my research and writing is in the world of leadership, uh, in particular employee engagement and organizational design. And so you've, you've been working in healthcare quite some time and in, in the next couple of years, you probably, uh, you foresee yourself kind of transitioning more into consulting, teaching, et cetera. Is that correct? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm, uh, just a few weeks away from, uh, traditionally you would call it retirement, uh, retiring from my company. I prefer to call it uh, rewirement where I'll uh, rewire a little bit and, uh, so I continue to do executive coaching, some consulting, have some expertise through my work in uh, high reliability organizations, which is the science that uh, aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines use to ensure quality and safety. And we've made application of that in healthcare for the last 15 or so years at our company. So I'll continue to do some work there. Um, recently signed on to be on the faculty at the University of Alabama at Birmingham to do some teaching there as well. So yeah, it's, uh, I won't not do anything, but uh, the nice thing about uh, retirement slash rewirement is you get to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Yeah, that's that's always uh, a good thing. And I remember you've been thinking about this pretty much since I've known you. I remember you told me about the book, Don't Retire, Rewire. Um, years ago, uh, as you're talking through and thinking through planning. So, yeah, exactly. My uh, wife and I, uh, we just, uh, when we were 50 years old, 10 years ago, we decided that we would uh, retire when we we're 60. 
she retired a little earlier than I did. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, we both turned 60 in January and uh, have uh, decided to step out on this uh, life 2.0. I love it. Well, great. Well, Rod, you, you know, you, as I said, you've been a huge impact for Stephanie and I over many years, many other people, but um, typically we get together for lunch and, and sometimes there's, you drop these bombs of ideas that, that kind of continue to reverberate. And one of the topics I've had you come speak to even my leadership development pipeline at our church, everything else is what you call the moral obligation of a leader. Uh, and, and I wanted to unpack that with you for our listeners here today, because I think whether you're leading a nonprofit, a church, a business, or whatever, um, as Christian men, as leaders, that um, and just as humans, right? There, there's this inherent obligation to provide, um, you know, to be thoughtful in how we're leading people. And so, can you unpack that just in, in general, and we'll kind of dig into some of the specifics? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the origin really came out of just a lot of conversations with employees and leaders in organization who were miserable going to work. Uh, there's a fair amount of research on employee engagement to say if you have a direct supervisor though, which you don't have a good relationship with, and uh, some studies have shown there's even a 30% increase, uh, the likelihood of you'll have a cardiac event because wow. of the stress that, that uh, supervisor causes. Um, and so, you know, that just got me thinking, you know, what a sad situation. Um, Gallup tends to show us every year for the last 15 years that about uh, 70% of employees are not fully engaged. Um, and so the best way to describe it is by example, if I, if I said, let's go out to this busy, busy intersection in a city and I want you to just pick a person and, and I'm going to give you the power over that person to disrupt their career, have a negative influence on their family, on their finances, uh, cause them so much stress that they would get sick, uh, you would likely decline that power just on a moral obligation. And so I point out that as a leader, as a supervisor, we have the same power, we have the same influence over those that we lead, and we can disrupt their career, we can uh, negatively affect their finances, time that they'd spend with their family, cause them stress. And so leadership really becomes a moral obligation uh, to those that we lead. And, and when we start thinking in those terms, we start thinking about our employees, our team differently. We have a responsibility to understand where they are um, in their career, where they are in their satisfaction. And good or bad, I think it's good. Some people think it's bad. Once you adopt that philosophy of um, a moral obligation to those that you lead, you just continue to see opportunities to apply that principle and it's hard to get out of that mindset. And so it's a, it's a deepening responsibility, which in the end I think is good, not only for the individual employee, but also for the overall organization. So how do you see that, you know, as you've been leading and unpacking this idea, how has it caused you to think differently about those you lead? Yeah, so uh, at a very minimum, I need to understand what their career aspirations are. I need to create an open and transparent relationship such that if they um, are encountering stress in their job, if they have uncertainty, if they have fear, that they feel comfortable coming and sharing that with me. Um, I had to get comfortable, and it's a little, little harder, I think, for a male leader than a female leader with just the emotional language that that brings out in these encounters with your employees. I have to um, be 
cognizant of the future and how their role may adapt. And, I, and so I have to provide them with the competence to do that. Um, you start to realize that I, I believe all, all people, but particularly employees, are looking for three universal needs. And those are autonomy. Um, autonomy just means that they want to put their fingerprints on some things. And so I have to have to give them the opportunity to have a voice in what we're doing, um, help in the implementation. The second one is competence. That just means that uh, we all want challenging work, but we don't want that challenge to overwhelm the skill or competency level that we have. And so um, my moral obligation to them is to make sure that they have the training and the development that they need. And then the last one is just relatedness. They, they want to work in an environment where it's friendly and they like people. And research would tell us that the, the strongest predictor of success, the most powerful relation to that is that employee's relationship with their immediate supervisor. And so I have to make sure that we have um, a good relationship. Now, that doesn't mean if, uh, if they're not doing their job that I don't address that. I, I believe the moral obligation goes to the extent that if this job is not right for them, I need to free up their future such that they can go find something that's more meaningful because meaningfulness in work is the, the true motivator. And when um, engagement is lacking, it generally means that they're not making daily progress towards meaningful work. And so they were either hired into a job that they will never find meaningful or as a leader, I've put so many barriers in terms of policies and lack of resources in their way that they're not able to make that daily progress towards meaningful work. So it becomes multifaceted on virtually every part of their role that you have to examine as a moral leader. So let me ask you this. Do you, do you recommend that leaders communicate this obligation to those they're leading, or is it something that, that we're just supposed to kind of have in mind for us? I mean, how do you how do you allow that to inform culture and that community with the people that you're leading? No, I think you have to share it openly. I share it openly in our organization. We have about 26,000 employees and um, virtually every time I speak, I talk about the moral obligation. I think that does a few things. First, it holds me accountable. And so if I tell my team and others in our organization that I want that standard in my leadership, then I'm very visible about it and, and I have an accountability to it. But I think it's also our obligation to the, the more broad organization that all of our leaders ad adopt that uh, principle. And so you can't really teach the principle uh, as easily by just silently role modeling as you can if you talk openly about it. So what do you do if you find someone that you are leading that, you know, the they're not finding it's, it's not really meaningful work. They're not experiencing, you know, the autonomy, competence, relatedness that you talk about. Is it, is it just, you know, cause I, I think, you know, I'm thinking about the circles that Josh and I run in where, you know, especially in church planning and all that kind of stuff. Many of us that are leading churches for the first time as they grow is for many of the guys that we work with and some of the ladies that I coach in business and everything else, it's their first time working with a staff. Like, I think the reaction often could be is like, well, if, if it's not currently meaningful, then they need to move on. Is, is there a process you take people through if you realize as more, you know, by, because of your moral obligation as a leader that, that they're not experiencing some of these things? How do, you, how do you lead someone, coach someone towards that? And then how do you make the hard decision that ultimately it's not meaningful for them long term, right? You know, because some people – 
they don't really care if the work is meaningful because they want a paycheck. Right. But, but if you're, if you're leading a, a uh, organization that could be challenging. So I, I guess my question's all over the place. Let me focus it in for you real oh. quick. Uh, number one, how do you, what's the process of, if people are not experiencing that, that is there a process that you think through of helping them towards that direction to determine if it's possible? And then if it's, if you determine that it's not possible, what's the best way to transition that person? Yeah. So now that, that's a key question. Uh, you start with the premise that there's likely something at play in the organization or in my leadership style that is disconnecting that employee from the potential of their engagement. So in other words, um, if I have an organization that's too heavily laden down with policies and procedures, if they lack resources, if I've allowed for other toxic employees to be on the team, those are all my responsibilities and all of those things will, will move somebody away from uh, being engaged. And, and so what oftentimes happens is an employee will come to an organization, they'll find meaningfulness in the work, but the systems at play, the culture at play will disengage them. Now, most leaders, many leaders, um, in fact, McKinsey had a study at one point where they, they asked senior leaders of organizations, do you, know it when you see it. In other words, can you tell when an employee is engaged or not? And uh, they indicated they could. They then asked them, well, what is it that causes them to be engaged? And most missed the point. Uh, most would say, well, you know, it's, it's stretch goals and it's financial incentives and uh, it's tough love and all these sort of things that were typically taught in business books and business school. When in reality, those are all largely extrinsic motivations. Uh, you know, money is always an extrinsic motivation or somebody will be motivated in a short period of time if I yell at them. Uh, but over the long period of time, people are generally only motivated by intrinsic motivation, the sheer joy of doing the task. And that's where you find the meaningfulness. And in fact, a lot of research would tell us that if someone is intrinsically motivated towards the purpose of your organization, much like you would find in a church or, or many organizations, in fact, and you introduce extrinsic motivations such as pressure or yelling at them or stretch goals or money, um, they, that generally demotivates, disengages an intrinsically motivated person. And so you have to start first with yourself and see and your organization, see if you're naturally disconnected. Now, as you point out, there's some employees that are just not going to find our work meaningful. And I work in healthcare and most would be surprised to say, well, can't everybody find healthcare meaningful or can't everybody that's working in a church organization find meaningfulness in this? And the, the answer is no. Uh, yeah. Everybody has a specific uh, thing that gives them energy. And that's generally the first indicator of meaningful work is that you're energized by the work to find it interesting. And some just won't. And so I think it's our moral obligation as a leader then that they deserve in life to have work that they're passionate about, that they're, they find joy in, that they find fully meaningful. And so then my moral obligation as a leader is to um, remove them from my organization. Uh, of course, before I do that, I, I make sure that they understand that my expectations, the expectations of the organization, I ask them to commit to that or not commit to it. And that's where it goes back to the open and transparent 
environment if if we have that and they share with me that you know that's I just can't commit to that expectation that I'm happy to work with them to try to find them some other organization to work in there's two other steps to that equation and it's it's a good fourth step for anybody that's looking um, to how they can be fully engaged in the organization uh, the first one is be very clear on the expectations of the organization your supervisor and this is almost will move to the point of annoyance where you have to keep asking your supervisor questions such that you fully understand. A lot of supervisors don't want to take the time to be that specific about what's expected. And a lot of times they don't even know. Yeah. Uh, but the demise of organizations generally come because of two things. One is lack of clarity on roles. And the second one is lack of clarity on goals. And so you start with expectations. The second is you ask yourself, can I be committed to what the organization and my supervisor is expecting of me? If I can't, then I need to leave the organization. I need to go find meaningful work elsewhere. If I can, then I move to step three. And uh, step three is how do you become indispensable to that organization in your role? That you work hard, you focus on growth, you truly become indispensable. And then step four is really the fun part. Uh, once you're indispensable to your organization, then you can get creative on really developing your role, designing your own job description, uh, taking on uh, aspects of the work, either as an addition or a totally new work of something that um, truly interests you. Uh, and so it's a good progression for anybody that's, that's trying to determine whether or not they should stay and invest in an organization or leave. Now, I've seen you do this, you know, personally with friends that, that have worked in your organization. I've seen you over the years create positions. Um, and it was pretty amazing how um, it, it seemed to me that you created positions that were not only beneficial for your organization, but also um, taking significantly into consideration the gifts of the person that you're working with. Um, how did you get to a point in your leadership where your team or organization or board of advisors or whomever trusted you to, to get creative that way. Is, is that just through being indispensable, you're able to go and say, Hey, I think this new position's what's needed. I believe this young person coming out of college is, is the future can do that. Well, how, how did you lead people around you towards that? Cause I mean, on, on many occasions I, I've heard of you and seen you, create positions that not only fit for the person that you're creating the position, but it was very beneficial for your organization. You know, can you walk me through that? Cause I, you know, cause I think a lot of times for entrepreneurs and church planters, you come across people who are extremely gifted um, and, and want them to be a part of the team as an organization's growing. But even in a large organization, you were able to identify needs of your organization and talents and people and create something in, in, majority of time turned out to be pretty special. Yeah. So a couple of key things you said there, uh, one is majority of the time. So it's not foolproof. Um, the, the second is that it has to be a benefit to the organization. So that's where you start. And so as a leader, we're primarily an influencer of people, but we're also a um, sort of a curator of solutions. And so um, as healthcare and many organizations evolve, um, then the positions have to evolve as well. And so if we look for where do we need a new approach to a particular solution, then you move from that to say uh, who appears, it's not 100% foolproof, but who appears to have a talent and interest, the competence uh, to do that. 
Um, and then you try to find a safe way to test that. I, I've found projects to be a very good way of doing that where a person will remain in their current job. They'll free up uh, you know, a good portion of the time, maybe 20% one day a week to work on a particular project that has something to do with that solution. And then as that approach is vetted and you see that that person was somewhat successful in doing that, then over time you move that person fully to working on that solution. And, and so it, it's, it's perhaps not as much as um, sort of a, a big leap all at once as you might think. It's testing it to see if it's right for that person as well as they're going to be right for that solution. Well, and I think that's a great point to make because I think visionary leaders like myself, you know, we're very much bent on results more than the effort that goes into it. And so it looks from the outside like, you know, there's a need, there's a person, you fit it together and it works beautifully. But what I'm hearing you say is really there's there's a scalable process to, to allow people um, and the organization to ensure that there's a fit along the way in order to, to bring that out. So let me ask you uh, one last question before we run out of time here today, Rod. Um, as, you're, as you're now kind of transitioning to a place of teaching at a university and consulting and coaching, et cetera, um, you know, what words of advice for a newer leader would you give as they're maybe building an organization or realizing that their organization isn't where they want it to be. How, what, what are some first steps they can take in, in adjusting around and, and realigning around this moral obligation for, uh, uh, for a leader in providing meaningful work for their, their team? All right. So largely, I think to be effective in that world, you have to become a student of yourself. You have to become a student of your own leadership. And while we, uh, oftentimes one or even some leaders crave the almost continual input from their supervisors. What I've seen over the many decades is uh, generally the boss is the least informed about your performance. Um, the, the best feedback's going to come from you yourself, watching yourself interact with people, uh, seeing what works, what doesn't work, a bit of a trial and error. Um, talk, talking to your employees about what's working for them and what's not. A great way to capture that is what I call a leadership journal, where you just, at the end of the day, you jot down meetings that went well, meetings that didn't go so well, conversations that went well, could have gone better. And over the course of weeks and months, you start to see patterns in how you can do things differently. And you know what's going on in your mind as an influencer, as a leader, uh, others around you don't necessarily know that, although direct reports generally have a good good uh, feel for uh, your abilities and your success. But for new leaders, I would encourage them to live in the world of self-awareness, uh, really understand their emotional intelligence, um, watch for how they have, make caring connections with people. Um, do they demonstrate uh, courageous authenticity where they're standing up for their team or they're standing up for their ideas? rather than uh, trying hard to uh, overly hard to belong in the organization or uh, to, to fit in. Uh, some of that's necessary early on in careers, but the leaders that are, are moving ahead in organizations are those that have studied themselves and have really started to find uh, solutions that benefit the organization through the people that they lead. It's very hard as an early leader to not become a boss 
because you feel like you've been hired to boss people around. And in most cases, as a new leader, everyone on your team knows more about their job than you do. And so you just have to be self-reflective. You've got to learn how to influence others um, without uh, creating the, the newbie mistakes of leadership. Well, Rod, this has been super helpful. Uh, can you tell our listeners before we sign off for today um, how they can get in touch with you? Where they can they find you online? Yeah, sure. Uh, they can find me on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn at Rod Brace, uh, or they can uh, uh, find my articles and contact me as well through rodbrace.com. R-O-D-B-R-A-C-E dot com. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Leadership Conversations. It's been a joy to have my friend and mentor, Rod Brace, on, and we will be joining you again next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leadership Conversations with Josh Reich and Casey Cease. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe to our podcast. Also, head on over to our website at www.leaderconvos.com.